Today's guest on the My Climate Journey podcast startup series is Scott Case, CEO and co-founder at Recurrent. Recurrent provides EV battery reports for used EV car buyers, helping consumers and dealers understand the residual health of the battery in a prospective used EV purchase. Think of them as a Carfax report for EVs. New EV sales have boomed since the launch of the Tesla Model 3 in 2018. In 2019, roughly 1% of new car sales in the U.S. were EVs. Last year, in 2022, that number had increased to over 5%. The used EV market, therefore, logically will follow a similar trajectory with a three- to four-year delay. And as Scott points out in our discussion, a car can only be sold new one time, but can be sold used many times over. Most of us have no experience buying a used EV. There just hasn't been any inventory. And as that changes, so too will our used car buying experience. And when it comes to what factors to pay attention to with a used EV, the health of the battery rises to the top of the list. Scott and I have a great conversation about what impacts an EV battery's health, how Recurrent gets the data to make health assessments, how he sees the used EV market evolving, and even what sort of EV he drives. It's a jam-packed episode with information that's sure to be personally relevant to many of us in the coming months and years ahead. But before we dive in, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. With that, Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. I... Got in incredibly late last night. I never travel anymore, ever, ever, ever. And yet I did travel yesterday and I got in at like 2.30 a.m. So I'm a few espressos into my morning and I'm looking forward to learning about the used EV world. <laughs> oh, it's going to be riveting. <laughs> this is going to be the equivalent of your fourth espresso right now. <laughs> so, Scott... You've been working in the climate space now. This is your, I think, your second company in the climate space, and you've been in tech for longer than that. Before we get into recurrent, before we start talking about used EVs, which I think a lot of listeners are going to be interested to learn what you're doing in recurrent, but just generally you're going to be interested in what in the world is going to happen with the used EV market. And so we're going to have all sorts of fun talking about that stuff. But before we even do that, just who's Scott Case? What's your background? How did you get into this problem in the first place? I'd been in software for years and years prior to getting into climate tech. And my last stop before, you know, I got on the good side was in an advertising tech firm called Aquaniv. We were acquired by Microsoft and I was like sitting there going, okay, this like interesting problem. It wasn't a minor acquisition. That was a big it acquisition. Was a big deal. I didn't own that company to be clear. So if I did, I'd probably be an investor, not an entrepreneur. But I was sitting around going like, okay, interesting problems, interesting technology, cool people, Meaningful? No. I mean, we were serving ads. It just wasn't that interesting. So it was after that acquisition that I sort of like made up my mind. I was like, I want to do something meaningful for the rest of my career in the second half or whatever. And I thought about either something in energy or something in healthcare, big, gnarly problems that I thought I could help with my software background. I remember I was actually on a trip. I was on a yoga retreat that my wife took me on to India. 
and I was reading Thomas Friedman's book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. I remember this and re remember reading the description of the smart grid for the first time. And I looked up and there was a solar hot water heater on the building across from where we were in Goa, India. And I was like, oh my God, like if India can pull this off, the United States, we need to get on this. That moment was my, I guess, like epiphany moment. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like sitting there working at Amazon, working at Facebook or whatever going, yeah, it pays pretty good, but I don't know. It feels like I should be doing something meaningful. And it feels like, I don't know, everybody has one of those moments where it becomes clear. I got to go on this. So yeah, that was mine. What was yours? <laughs> oh boy. Interesting. So I was also in a developing country. I was in Haiti. And I was there for a tech conference. And I remember specifically being in the ocean between events, like laying on my back, looking up at these deforested mountains of the ocean I was in in Haiti and thinking, wow, this country is obviously in a lot of chaos and has a lot of challenges and they don't have any natural resources left to even help them get out of it. And as sea level rise and increasing temperatures take over, how is a country like this going to even be viable at all, given the problems they're already facing today. And what can I do to help? That was one of my big aha moments as well, interestingly. It's really interesting, too, that both of those came from a moment where you and I were out of our regular daily routine. And I feel like you just sort of look at things differently, especially when you get out of our American culture and society. And your mind is just open in different ways. And I feel like they say like when you're dreaming, your brain is using, you know, 80% of its capacity versus like 10%. Those things are like, I don't know, I come up with great ideas in the shower for companies and stuff. And I guess when I'm like outside of my usual routine as well. Yeah, it's an interesting point, too, because I feel like those of us who work in climate, to some extent, I just mentioned I just returned from a trip and I almost never travel anymore because I do feel a little bit of that social pressure. If I work in climate, I know how terrible jet emissions are for global warming and whatnot. And yet, you're right, when you get out of your day-to-day, -day, it certainly helps, at least for me, it helps reflect on things that I maybe wouldn't be thinking about if I were just kind of in the middle of what I do every day. Well, and also I don't think it requires being in Haiti or being in India. When you get out of your usual routine, I think that your mind opens a little bit in a different way. So from that moment of clarity, you know, my epiphany moment, I was just like, I want to do something with the smart grid. This just seems like a good idea. This was 2008. I ended up getting hooked up with two other guys at that point that one of them was like, yeah, I think we're going to do something around energy whatever. And I was like, yeah, great. Sure. That sounds like something more meaningful than what I'm doing. And maybe it turns into something. And so this was the early days of Energy Savvy, which was the first company I was involved in the climate space. Our mission for that company was to help people make their houses more energy efficient. So we were essentially analyzing smart meter data, helping people understand questions about what insulation should I have in my attic? Is a heat pump the right thing for me? What's the ROI on that? And then you could even get down to, gosh, like I got new duct air sealing. We could tell from the data that was spinning out of people's houses was installed correctly, just from the data. Like you should have gotten this result. You didn't. You got this. There's a huge hole somewhere. Those kinds of questions. Boy, Scott. And it feels like that company, you took it to scale and got to a decent outcome for that. But you might have been about five or 10 years early on that one. We were. You know who I love, the company that I love that is really what I feel like 
energy savvy V2 or V3, and that's sealed. I think that what they're doing is very similar to what we had way back in the day, only they figured out how to add a financial mechanism to it. So it didn't require the upfront cost. And it's just so smart what they're doing. So Lauren came on the pod. So for all of you pod listeners who haven't heard, go back and listen to the sealed episode. Oh, awesome. Yeah, she's great. So yeah, ran the company. I was chief operating officer there. I mean, this is one of these things like we all pick titles at the beginning. We were not qualified for any of them, but over time you become qualified. I was COO. I ran product and customer success and everything that wasn't direct sales or direct engineering was my bailiwick, basically. Like you said, we ended up building it to about 10 million of ARR. And then we were acquired by a company called Tendril. Really interesting exit there. It was an okay exit. It wasn't like a home run. I think in climate tech, especially climate tech V1, that was pretty much a home run. We gave our investor money back and then some. We landed our customers and our employees in a great place. And Tendril then, for the insiders, then acquired a bunch of companies. There were like six companies that got rolled up all at the same time. And then they became Uplight which was a private equity funded thing, which is now huge now. So neat story there. That's like you probably should do some time with Adrian Tuck or whatever, you know, on the Tendril team to get the rest of it. But basically, pretty much after we exited or after we sort of were acquired, I was like, all right, I'm out. I'm ready for my next thing. Chronology wise, I think that was like 2009. No, I'm sorry. That was not 2009. I'm a decade off. That was 2019. So 10 years later, that was my first journey. Time flies, Scott. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're about to get into the COVID era and then time is just flat. It it's is. crazy. Like we're on March 2020, part 36 at this point. So then how did Recurrent come to be? After exiting Energy Savvy, I was kind of like, all right, well, I'm looking around for my next idea and I'm a pretty pragmatic person. So I'm just like, how can I keep chipping away at the climate change problem? And I was so deep for 10 years in energy efficiency, and I lived in Seattle at the time, a single-family home, no garage, no driveway, not even off-street parking on my side of the street. So like, there was no way I was getting an EV early on. So I just wasn't paying attention. So now I pop my head back up in 2019. There's batteries everywhere driving around the roads. Like, that's different than what it was 10 years ago. So what are the problems that are left in that space? And what needs to be part of the ecosystem that isn't today? The first area I looked at was actually an offshoot of Energy Savvy, which our customers in Energy Savvy were utilities. And basically, I saw how utilities were going to have to deploy a lot of grid-scale storage to incorporate all the renewables that were coming onto the grid. And what I know about utilities is they're cheap, <laughs> you know, they're super cheap. And so they're always going to go, they'll issue an RFP for everything, and they're almost always going to default pick the cheapest one. I was like, ooh, I know how I could get them cheap storage, and that's decommissioned EV batteries. If you could sort of figure that out, take a waste stream that's like really hard to deal with, and then put that into the grid, I definitely, if you're listening at home, do not take a used Tesla battery or used Leaf battery and sort of put it in your home. That's not where those decommissioned batteries should be. They should be in like shipping containers in the middle of the desert next to a solar farm. If one catches fire, it's not a problem. Seal it up, move on to the next one. We have actually have a portfolio company at MCJ that specializes in that problem. They're called Moment Energy. I love Moment. So that's another. I met them early on in their journey through the University of Washington Clean Energy Institute. I've been on the sidelines helping them along and cool. making some intros and stuff like that. You two have a lot of data, I assume, that can be useful to each other, presumably. Totally, yeah. We haven't actually done any sort of work together, but just as a sort of a helper on the sidelines. Cool. But Moment really... They're building the company that I would have gone and done if it wasn't been for recurrent. And my conclusion was at the time, this is 2019, I was like, 
I feel like there's just not that many decommissioned batteries around. I'm a software guy, so I wanted to do the software version. Moment's doing the whole entire stack. I was like, that's not me. It's like too early for a software-only business. But in the process of looking at that company idea, honestly, I was just looking at, well, what's the inventory in progress for a decommissioned battery? That's a used car, basically, a used EV. So I started looking at how used EVs were getting bought and sold, and I was like, this is messed up. I was looking at Craigslist posts on like used Leafs. People were like, yeah, this has 10 bars. I get this much range. And I'm like, 10 bars? What does that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? That was just the Nissans. BMW i3s, older Teslas. It's just all different and there's no standards for it. And the other thing, sort of my other, I guess, moment of like, oh gosh, there's a real problem here is recognizing that everybody has now has been trained Everyone knows they've had a smartphone long enough or a series of them to know that lithium-ion batteries wear out over time. And so I actually spent some time at University of Washington in the Clean Energy Institute there, and I would walk into professors' offices and I'd be like, all right, let's say you walk on a used car lot and you're going to go buy a used leaf. And there's two of them sitting next to each other, same make, model, year, and same odometer number. Let's say the same color. They both look great. Which one do you buy? material scientists, professors, electrical engineers, chemical engineers, they just leap up to the whiteboard and they're like, okay, let me do this. And the first thing I'm going to do is going to pull the battery out, pack out, and I'm going to take all the cells out and I'm going to hook them up to an electrochemical impedance spectrography machine. I'm like, whoa, none of that works. You can't destroy the thing in order to determine how good the thing is. There's a real problem there. And even you don't have to be a professor of chemical engineering to sort of understand this problem because you've had an iPhone, you know, it wears down. It was like, all right, well, there's a real problem here. We realized there's a question and there's a market problem out there. And really, the market problem we're solving is that needs to be in place is the used EV market is dysfunctional, basically. The cars are getting bought and sold with the wrong questions in mind. And what that means is that it's holding the market back and, frankly, just injecting this uncertainty in a way that we cannot have to get EVs to scale and get them everywhere. So that's really how Recurrent came to be. Awesome. You had this epiphany, you had this idea, and then how did the company itself somewhat get going? As I understand it, you were a participant in Pioneer Square Labs, which I know is a leading studio in the Seattle area. Maybe explain kind of the early days of the company of how you came from this idea that, hey, there's maybe a problem here to, oh, I think I know what the business I might want to build would be. I think the easy part of what we're doing is that everyone that we talk to in the market recognizes this is a problem and it needs somebody to solve it. So that was like never the issue. The two harder parts were how are we going to do it in a way that's sort of possible and in the used car ecosystem, which there are not a whole bunch of chemical engineers and laboratories involved in that. And then the second question is what's the business model? And so I had two sort of really key stints that helped me sort of figure out each of those questions. The time at University of Washington was really important to figure out how are we going to do this. I have pages and pages of notes of what you could do. Almost all of it is not actionable in the used ecosystem. So we sort of figured out the approach that we thought would work with that. And the second was time at Pioneer Square Labs to figure out the business model. I love working with that team. I've known a couple of the partners there for a long, long time, actually going back to the ad tech days. Believe it or not, I walked into Pioneer Square Labs March 10th, 2020, <laughs> and was like, hey, I think I had this idea. Here's what it is. I know how we I would do it. I've checked it with a couple of customers. Isn't it crazy how you remember exactly who you met with in March 2020? Yeah, exactly. I can also name the like three or four last meetings I did totally. at that time. 
we had two meetings there in person where they were like, yeah, you know, we, we look at a lot of companies and this has a chance. They throw a lot out. And so decided I'm going to go in and kind of incubate it for a couple of months in that. I remember, so I officially became an entrepreneur in residence, but in that first meeting on the 17th of March, they shut down the office and everybody went home. So I was an entrepreneur, never in residence, basically. So the whole thing then was basically from home. For those lacking the historical context, there was this thing called COVID that happened at that time. (laughs) This is hilarious. So now I think of our future viewers 30 years from now, people who were not even born and be like, hey, you know, there was this thing that happened and gosh. (laughs) Anyway, so we incubated the company from March through June and it became clear right away. We just did like the classic MVP test web (laughs) page. It was like the original website was evbatteryhealthcheck.com or something stupid like that, where it was like the classic thing with a picture of a report and a big button that says, check your health, your battery health. And then you would enter your email, your VIN in your email or something like that. And then we just sort of see, would anybody do that? And there's a couple of cool, really neat ways that Pioneer Square Labs has developed to market test ideas. I remember you telling me like early on, you all had like the number one Google search result for, I think it was Chevy Bolt battery health or something like that. Oh yeah, still that came later. At this PSL stage, we would just buy Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads, really cheap stuff. And all you're looking for is how many people would click on the ad, then go to the site, read three bullets and look at a picture and be like, yeah, yeah, I'll enter a VIN and an email address to find that out. And that's all you're looking at. We couldn't even do shit at the beginning. We couldn't do it. You sort of got the equivalent of, oh, thanks for your interest. We're not available in your area or whatever. But we needed to do that to figure out, basically, can we overcome the decades of auto marketing that has trained people the way you buy used cars, you look at the odometer number. And we thought that there's going to be a different way that this would change. But, you know, a startup can't like educate the entire industry to be like, even if intellectually it should be done a different way, a tiny startup cannot do that on their own. So we needed to see pushing on an open door here or not. And we saw that we were. Super interesting to hear your ad tech background, presumably also coming into yeah, help a little right. bit here because this is yeah, it's all coming together now. Really, a <laughs> digital marketing play at least at the start there. And so, before we dive into like the product solution that you ended up building at Recurrent and what you offer today, let's take a sidestep and actually just talk about the used EV market. So you mentioned. Consumers have been trained for decades to look at an odometer number. When you buy a car, you get a Carfax report that says, has this car had any accidents or whatnot? Generally, you might take a used car to be looked at by a mechanic, but I think even though that's a best practice, probably very few people actually do that. What's different about buying an EV that we haven't even thought about yet? First of all, an electric vehicle is still a vehicle. You want to know the same stuff. Has it been in accidents? How many owners has it had? Was it smoked in? Those kinds of things. But an EV has... 20 moving parts in its drivetrain compared to 2,000 in a combustion engine car. And so there just aren't that many things that can go wrong. However, (laughs) there's one piece to it that if it goes wrong, it's a huge deal. And that's the high voltage battery. You could have a situation in plenty of cases where a used EV is $10,000, $15,000. And if the battery dies out of warranty, it costs ten dollars to $15,000 to replace it. So you basically just bought a brick. The residual value is much different. It's not like this glide path. It's pretty flat. And then there's a cliff that happens. Maybe. That's the thing. It's like it's not always going to happen. And so how do I know if it's going to happen in this case? Anyway, it's worth it to de-risk that problem for a used buyer. So you mentioned that use case of what if I took a professor to a Nissan Leaf car lot and had him look at two cars, how would they choose which one to do? 
what should you be looking at? What matters? How do you know if an EV battery is healthy or not? The way you tell and what you should be looking for is some gauge of the battery. Now, what's interesting is, first of all, there are no standards, unlike 12 volt batteries in cars, where you pretty much know like what the current, what the voltage should be, if it's healthy or not. There are no standards in high voltage batteries that are in EVs. And I think that's fine right now. The technology is changing so quickly every model year and if you're manufacturers. So it's just this really hard problem to solve. And so the other thing is the manufacturers are not coughing that data up. There are some calls for the EPA to provide a different testing mechanism and require different stats, but none of that's in place. And so you've got, at this point, 12 years worth of used EVs on the road, 3 million cars in the U.S. on the road across all different plug-in hybrids and battery electric cars with basically no disclosure. And so our approach, basically, the short answer to your question is you should ask for a recurrent report from your dealer. That's the self-serving part of this. For anybody who's out there looking to use EV, what we show is we have this score. This is basically a zero to 100 score that just compares how much range, the max range that that individual car gets compared to what it did when it was new. And if it's 95, it gets 95% of the range at max that it did when it was new. And that's an indication. It's not a perfect one, but it's an indication like, yeah, the battery's in pretty good shape versus one that we score as an 80. That's more likely to, first of all, two things. One is you're going to get less range than a 95 or than the new one. And two is it's an indication the battery is more worn down and so it's more likely to fail in the future. And how are you doing that assessment? I know each individual car can kind of show that to the consumer. They may or may not choose to reveal it. Our Apple iPhones have only recently started revealing that to each of us in the little battery section and settings. Is this incumbent on the prior owner of that vehicle having granted recurrent with access to data around it? Or is it something a dealership can flip on once they take ownership of a car post sale from the consumer back to them? How's it work? A couple different ways. Basically, in a small number of cases at this point, we have about 15,000 cars that are enrolled and connected on our platform that are just individually owned. So for everybody listening to this podcast, if you own an EV today, you should come to recurrentauto.com and sign your car up. It's free. And you're, we basically track your battery for you and give you a monthly wellness report that just says, hey, your car's in good shape, or maybe there's something to worry about here. You want to take it in. And super simple interface and problem that we're solving there for the owner. When one of those cars shows up for sale, we know as long as the owner says to us, hey, you can disclose this data, my data, we have that car dead to rights. We know exactly where that battery is and can compare it to thousands of other comparables, normalizing for weather, normalizing for state of charge, everything. So there we have a ton of certainty. The next level down is if a car wasn't connected. And frankly, we only have 15,000 out of 3 million. So like it's not a lot right now. But what that 15,000 gives us the ability to do is basically have a sample comparison set. So if we get a little bit of data for a car when it shows up on a lot, and for us, it looks like the car dealer takes a little picture of the dashboard, enters a couple of pieces of data that we need, then it's like we were connected to that car for one ephemeral moment, basically. And we can essentially compare it with a reasonable degree of certainty against our broader fleet. And the cool thing is there is a data science flywheel here. So the more cars we get connected of a particular battery pack configuration, the more precise we can be with a car that just so shows up, we get one data point and we can pretty much dial it in. That's the simpler answer. It doesn't require the laboratory environment or such crazy workarounds, which we have heard people doing of like, oh, I'll just charge it up 
drive it till it's empty eight hours later and then see how many miles it got. That doesn't work because there's all kinds of weather-related and driving-related variances. And it takes you all day. You cannot do a test drive where you're all day and then go get a tow truck. So there's just not great ways to do this. And we feel like this is a pretty reasonable way of doing it. Hey, everyone. I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. And are you all finding any patterns that reveal how and why a given car might underperform from a battery perspective? Is it mostly manufacturing issues, or is it mostly environmental and situational issues related to how and when and where the car was driven? This is like nature or nurture for EVs right here. (laughs) (laughs) It's a combination. I mean, there are highly publicized battery recalls that have happened where the manufacturer is like, something got screwed up. Every Chevy Bolt ever made between 2017, 2020, or 2021 has already gotten or will get a battery replacement. By the way, plug for Chevys. First of all, I think they did the right thing. They threw the book at that problem and it cost them and LG a lot of money to do it. But that was the right thing from a perspective of like building confidence. And it was just a QA problem in the manufacturing process. But second thing I'll say here, this is on this sidebar, this is my Chevy Bolt sidebar, is those used cars are great. They all have brand new batteries that have a higher capacity than a lot of them did when they were new. We actually had to change our scoring system for bolts because they're regularly getting 120% of the range than what they had when they were new. So it's like, you should definitely go buy a used bolt. Great car, you know, and they're cheap. So great car to buy. What are the environmental factors that influence car battery performance? Besides the manufacturing issues, which there are some and the manufacturer by and large doing a great job of, the environmental issues are Again, let's say, in general, cars that grew up in very hot conditions, extremely hot conditions, tend to wear down faster than cars that grew up in very cold conditions. So I don't know. Do you remember like when you were growing up keeping the Duracell batteries in the freezer? Did you do that when you were? Of course. Yeah, for sure. I don't know why we all did that, but it actually makes some sense. You don't need to be in freezing cold temperatures. You don't need to like refrigerate your garage if you have an EV owner, but Extreme heat does cause lithium-ion batteries to sort of wear down faster. It's one of them. Regular use of DC fast charging. If you have a car that's getting a steady diet exclusively of DC fast charging, it wears the battery down faster. Now, you should still go on road trips and use DC fast charging. Like, definitely do that. If that's all the car is getting, it's going to wear down faster than if it's getting level one, level two charging most of the time. And does Recurrent understand those causes 
you're seeing this car is getting regular DC fast charging? Or is it just you've now done enough use cases where you've said, oh, this car is clearly underperformant relative to its peer group. And you've gone and interviewed the owner of the car to find out what their usage patterns were like to understand. For the connected cars, we do see it in the data. You see it in the data. We also see the impact of battery replacements in the data. We don't need anyone to report that they got a battery replacement. All of a sudden, we're like, you could just see, here comes the Chevy Bolt. The range is going down, 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 down. And all of a sudden, whoop, it skyrockets to something that's higher than when it was new. And we're like, yep, there was a battery replacement right there. For cars that show up at used car lots that were not connected to us, what we would be able to say is, gosh, this car is in great shape, this battery is in great shape, or this battery is in not great shape, we might not know why. For those cases, we might not know. It might be that that, this car just baked in the desert in Phoenix, or it might be that it lived in a very moderate climate, but was just hammered with DC fast charging all the time. We might not know why, but ultimately, it's actually not that important to the secondary buyer. They just need to know, is this good or not? Each of us have bought enough cars probably over the years that we have in our mind. I wouldn't want to buy a car with this many miles. I have a sense of what kind of zone of car was right for me. In the EV world, how does one think about that? Is it just age? Is it growth of mileage? Or is it you have to have this degradation performance report to like really have a view? Is there a certain amount of battery degradation that you would say no one should feel comfortable buying that car? It's too complicated because there's too many different chemistries and too many different nature and nurture variables. And so... The plug for recurrent, I would say what you should do is let us do the hard work on this. And there's some real friggin' data science here. Data access and modeling and outlier detection and all of that. We have spent the last three years doing this across 55 different makes and models of cars. So if you don't have access to a recurrent report, we should ask your dealer for it. But if they're still obstinate, probably go somewhere else. The other rule of thumb is in general, if you know you can buy a car that was always plugged in at home and grew up in a moderate climate, I'd probably do that all else equal. Let me ask the question a different way. When you're buying an ICE car, you might feel totally comfortable buying a 20-year-old car with 200,000 miles on it. And that may be the right car for you. With an EV, there's got to be a limit somewhere of this battery is just only going to probably last for another two or three years, and it's just not going to be worth it. How does one know where that limit sits? This technology is so new still that we just haven't seen it yet in terms of the death, the death of natural causes. Now, there are plenty of manufacturing issues that are getting fixed. There are plenty of cases where a card was just ridden hard and put away wet. It dies early, basically. But natural causes, there's still plenty of 2011 Leafs and 2011 Model Ss that are out there that are fine. So recurrent is going to help me understand this car relative to its peer cars That's right. is above or below expectation. But then me as a consumer, I'm still going to have to make the call of how old and how much risk do I want to take in general, even for a car that might be outperforming its peers from an older vintage. That's right. And right now, there are not really companies that are doing extended warranties that cover the battery. I mean, all of the batteries are covered in the original manufacturer warranty. Typically, it's eight years, 100,000, sometimes 120,000 miles. It varies a little bit. But mostly for those older cars, there's nothing left besides just Hope I get a good one. Now, the other thing I want to say is it's not a binary test. It's not like, oh, battery will die or it won't. And I think much more of what we're doing that's interesting is we're saying, here's two Tesla Model 3s that are four years old and they're priced pretty similarly and they have a similar number of odometer miles. We're like, this one, you're going to get 220 miles of range in normal conditions. And this other one, you're going to get 200. 
that's fine. Both of them are fine. They're great cars people drive on the average 30 miles a day. However, you shouldn't pay the same amount for the 200 versus the 220. So I think it's about a essentially price discrimination, one, and it's about making sure that that car fits to your lifestyle where you're going to drive. Because the other thing is, we haven't even gotten into talking about weather variances. Some of these cars in the winter, when you're driving them, you could lose 30% of your range in a very cold environment. So that extra 220, you like to go up to a cabin in the mountains or whatever, you like to go skiing. And the 220 might be great and the 200 might not be. And then even though it's great today, what will happen three years from now? A lot of it is about setting expectations. What am I getting? And gosh, the EPA number on the, all these cars, it's wrong on day one when they're brand new because it doesn't take into account weather variation. And frankly, also the manufacturers, they can just put on a correction factor that is kind of however they feel, literally how it works. And so it's wrong on day one and it gets more wrong over time and in different weather conditions. A brand new Model 3 will perform very differently in Phoenix in the summer, in Los Angeles in November, and in Minneapolis in February. That's correct. And Teslas in particular rarely get their EPA range even when they're brand new because of the way that the manufacturer applies adjustment factors compared to some of the other vehicles that are out there, non-Tesla EVs, that their EPA range might be lower, but they regularly exceed it when they're new. I mean, that's the one number that's out there for new cars, and you can't even trust that number, you know, in terms of real world, what you actually experience. So let's talk a little bit about how you see the used EV market evolving over the coming years. I have to assume we're about to see a tidal wave of first-generation lease returns hitting the used EV market. And that market is poised to grow tremendously, but I don't have the numbers. I don't know what it looks like. So this is what you live and breathe. What are we seeing over the next few years? An easy way of predicting the UZV numbers is just look at what the sales were four years ago. New. That's basically the easiest way of doing it. And the thing that happened four years ago was the release of the Model 3. That single vehicle came out in such high volume that it like doubled the market right then. And so essentially we're seeing now the echo of that. There are used Model 3s coming out people's noses right now. Lease returns, private party sales, dealer sales, everything. So we can predict now also what the used market's going to look like for the next couple of years. And it just keeps on step function growth, basically. The used EV market has been wild the last, let's say, year, right? I mean, last year, Every used EV on the market, because there were such chip shortages on the new side, sort of meant that there were these huge long waiting lists. Everyone holding any EV of January of 2022 basically had an appreciating asset on their hands all the way through most of the year. Now, that really changed starting in about September and then accelerating through to, so now we're in April 2023. A couple of different things going on there. One is just there's more new supply coming out. Two is interest rates made it more expensive to buy cars. Three is Tesla's been cutting prices left and right. Six price cuts this year already, this calendar year already. And every time Tesla cuts price on the new side, there is a dollar for dollar impact on the used side. And so that's crazy town. It's a little bit interesting. If you're an individual Tesla owner or EV owner, yeah, you probably should have sold your car eight months ago. You would have gotten more, but then you would have to buy another car. So it's a little bit like, how can you time the market? Now, if you're a fleet owner, you own a thousand of these or 10,000 of these. That is a massive financial loss that you had that was just unanticipated. It all came because Elon decided to cut prices to juice demand on the new side. Okay. Now, if you're a dealer, you have sort of this other issue of where you could be holding a hundred cars in inventory on January 1st. 
big price cut comes out, you just lost millions of dollars overnight. So the whiplash that's going on in the used market is crazy, and it has real impacts to all the parties that are in the space right now. What do you think recurrence business model, how do you think it adjusts and grows from today being an EV health report to ultimately leveraging the data you have on all these vehicles? It feels like you're setting yourself up for a bigger business opportunity in the future. We think of our company now as we do two things. We sell data and we sell cars. That second thing is newer for us. So the data thing is like we've just realized that given a particular VIN at the moment that it transacts from the used market, there's a lot of people that want to know. The buyer, the seller, the wholesaler, the insurance company, the financing company, the extended warranty companies that are emerging, the fleet. Everybody wants a sense of what should this car be worth? And a big part of that is like, how's the battery and how's it compared to all the other things out there? That's our data business. And that's going really well. And we've just realized that the questions that the shoppers are asking that we started out this conversation with, they're just starting to get answered now by all the parties in the used car ecosystem. And that is a huge, huge market. I mean, over twice the size of the new car market. Definitionally, every car can be sold new only once. It gets sold and used typically more than once. The second piece of it, I think this is one of those like entrepreneurial, didn't occur to us at the beginning, I'll say this, but we realized that some of the people that were subscribed on our platform, like that EV owner platform, we saw them selling their cars. Duh, like people sell their cars. And we would see it in the way that like the car would disconnect from our service. And we had like this automated email that would go out and be like, hey, we lost connection to your car. Is it parked underground for a really long time or what? And, and people were right back and be like, oh no, I sold it. I got this Rivian. Can I hook that up? And we're like, yeah, definitely. But the other thing is we realized some people were like, yeah, actually, I printed out my last recurrent report and I showed it to the buyer. It went really well. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. So we realized that there was a function that we could serve to the EV owners when they went to sell to reduce that uncertainty. So we kind of leaned into that a little bit. And so that essentially the impact to an EV owner that's working with us basically again, for free, tracking their data, is they could sell their car for hundreds or thousands of dollars more, and that's starting to really propagate it throughout the industry. That's a great value prop to the owner. So we've actually leaned into even more, and we're now, we've done a partnership with BlackBook, which is one of the major valuation services to start to suck up battery data into that valuation and then reflect that in the purchase price, both at wholesale, at trade-in, and ultimately at retail. So the value prop becomes to an EV owner, like, hey, track your battery. We'll tell you, make sure everything's okay. We'll give you a constant update on what your car is worth, including the battery. And then when you're ready to sell, you get to sell it for way more. That's a great value prop. And it works out for us sort of financially. We just get a larger share of wallet because not only are we tracking data, we're also beginning to facilitate those transactions. So you become a used car, used EV marketplace. My parents sent me to all these fancy colleges. I got some advanced degrees and yeah, I'm a used car salesman now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would say technically we are not a car dealer. We're basically like working with the same dealers that are subscribing to our condition report product or data product to essentially help them buy the best battery cars from our fleet owners. That's what I was going to ask. So you're not turning around and reselling it to other consumers, the next gen CarMax or Carvana, you're selling the inventory to dealerships. Is that correct? Here's the other interesting wild card that's going on in the used EV market is in the Inflation Reduction Act from last August, most of the headlines have been written about the new EV tax credit. And there's like some now there's like this emerging storyline on used commercial fleet EV credits, which are... Isn't there 3,500 for used EVs? Is that right? 
there's three things that were part of that. There was a $7,500 tax credit for new EVs. There's income limits and battery sourcing requirements. There is a $7,500 tax credit for cars that are purchased and put into commercial fleets and then could be leased out or whatever. That actually doesn't have the battery sourcing requirements or the income limits. And so that's sort of an interesting sort of thing. And then in addition to that, there is also a used EV tax credit. This is the first time that the federal government has ever put a tax credit on a used cars before. So like, whoa, this is different. Now, what's wild about that, and the number here is $4,000 on a tax credit for a used EV. There's a bunch of interesting and complicated requirements for that. Right now, it's a tax credit starting in January 2024. It's going to be a point of sale discount on these cars. Now, the key thing here and why we think that the dealer, the car dealer is going to be a really important player here is the car has to be sold by a licensed dealer in order for this tax credit to be redeemed. I think I see why the government did this is because like, imagine like the potential for fraud if you just got like your cousin selling you a car, do you sell it back to them or whatever? So no, a dealer has to be involved in the reporting process here. Is there income verification too, I think, for that? There's an income limit for the used credit. Will a dealer start applying that? They'll have to do some kind of accreditation on your income? Like, holy smokes. Yeah, it's going to be complicated to figure this all out. Right now, again, as a buyer, you file a form with your taxes. The first time that'll get filed is next April for all the 2023 purchases. Moving forward, the government hasn't said how it's going to work starting in January. The dealers are going to be involved in this somehow. But what's interesting is like that $4,000, basically cash on the hood, Right now, if you look at all used car sales, about 55% of them are sold by dealers and 45% are direct sold to private parties. I think with used EVs moving forward, because of that single tax credit, this is the over the next 10 years, I think a far higher percentage of them are going to be sold through dealers because of that. It basically tips the scales. So I think our belief is that the dealer is really going to be central to this. I think there's also the other thing is like, this is still new technology. And so I think that people are still a little more comfortable going to a dealership where there's some recourse versus like, if you're just doing a private party sale, you're meeting somebody in a McDonald's parking lot and handing them a check. Maybe we get there at some point, but I think it's probably not the case with used EVs for a while. And I know with used EVs, at least earlier on when we were more inventory constrained, we still are, but it sounds like that problem is loosening up. Ooh, it's not. This is the other thing that's like crazy, crazy about the used car market in general, the used EV market too. So during COVID, famously, there were many millions of cars that were not produced that would have been because of chip shortages. Now that's 2020, 2021, 22, even 2023. Now the most common period for a used car to show up is three to four years after it was produced new. So what we're about to go into starting basically later this year and running through 2027 is this period where there were millions of cars that were not produced new and so will not show up in the used market. So we're about to enter this prolonged period of depressed inventory of used cars, basically. It's a ripple effect from the chip shortages during COVID. So that's actually going to cause used car prices, I think, long term to be actually somewhat inflated. But there's so many other factors, including new car pricing and interest rates and everything like that, that are going to have cross impacts. But there's a real thing that's going to be the case over the next few years. Let me rephrase the setup of my question. then. (laughs) (laughs) So In the early days of Tesla experimenting with used cars, it looked like they were trying to centralize the used car sales function through their national sales platform at tesla.com. It seems like that is rapidly decentralizing away just because there are so many Model 3s on the market and people are trading it in for 
a BMW or trading it in for a Rivian or whatever they're doing. Do you expect that the used EV market from a consumer perspective at a dealership is going to feel similar to how we've all bought cars for decades? You're going to walk into a dealership and you'll haggle with someone over the sticker price of this car and it's up to the local dealership to set pricing? Tesla here in the used market is doing things a little differently than most other automakers and they do sell some of their own used cars. When we look at the numbers, is not more than they have a, last time I looked, it was maybe a 10% share of used Teslas. It's a slice of a slice, but that's an option that other automakers don't offer. But I think even the context, the big difference there is Tesla owns all of the Tesla dealerships. There are not independent Tesla dealerships. Well, like yeah, there, there are, are no for... Tesla dealerships at all. I mean, Tesla yeah, okay. basically has service centers. And when you buy a used Tesla from Tesla, you're ordering it on their website and then you're going to pick it up wherever. It's like buying a Ford from Ford Motor Company, not buying a Ford from your local basketball stars, local dealership of Ford. That's right. Yeah. I feel those more really football stars there than basketball <laughs> stars. But anyway, some people will do that. But the majority of the time, people are going to go to either they're going to do it online with a Carvana or a CarMax or something like that, or they will go to a dealership, trade in their old car and buy a used EV, Tesla or other from a dealership. And I think that's going to be the case for a long time, actually. I don't see that going away. And Scott, talk us through a little bit about where the company is today. I know you've raised a bit of financing. Where are you in terms of progress, size of the company, and what's next? Recurrent is just, this is this classic, we hit the timing right, basically. It was before, well before, we started the company in 2020, it was well before any incumbent could justify paying attention to this 1% case, basically. And now it's a 3% case and, you know, going to a 5% case. And so I think we just got out ahead and built this huge data advantage. And that's turning into a huge brand advantage that is just means that we're now, everyone is kind of turning to us and going, I need information on these cars. And then more and more people are turning to us and saying, yeah, I want to track my car. I want to sell my car through you guys because I see the benefits to it. We spent a couple of years doing the hard data work and setting up the frameworks for that. And then we've just over the past like six to nine months, the feeling, and I know other entrepreneurs will hear this with the way I intended is you can feel product market fit. And that's where we've hit in the last six to nine months. And so that means now we basically did a seed round in 2020 and we did a little bit of convertible note last year, but we're heading towards like the growth stage of our company. And that's just such an awesome feeling as an entrepreneur, just this massive, like three year long, I told you so. It's like, I saw it and I saw it a long time before anybody else did. And we've been able to execute well and not screw anything up too badly that I think we have the chance to just roll up the market in this way and just be part of every single used EV transaction that turns into every single used car transaction moving forward. And where do you need help? If you are an EV owner, you should come and sign up your EV on our platform, recurrentauto.com. You go to our owner section, great resource and it's free. If you are, I guess, like an EV shopper, EV curious, we have a ton of resources. You can actually come to our site. You have a one you're looking at. You can type in the VIN and or copy paste the VIN and get a essentially an estimated level report, even if your dealer isn't doing it on Recurrent Auto. I don't know how else we need to help when our company's growing. Again, my problem has never been, is this problem worth solving? It's more just a, can we execute on it and not screw it up? And so I think we're going to be adding people over time to do that. Scott, I've learned a ton. Is there anything I should have asked that we didn't cover? You didn't ask me what I drive. What do you drive, Scott? <laughs> I don't even know why I brought this up. So <laughs> when I started the company, I didn't have an EV because remember, I didn't have a place to plug it in. 
Like all good Seattleites, I drove a Subaru Outback about a year and a half ago, bought a VW ID4 because we moved. Actually, I have a garage for the first time since high school. <laughs> so I actually have a place to plug it in and totally love the car. It's like so fun to drive. And I just feel so smug every time I drive past a gas station. I love it. I personally don't yet own an EV. I work from home. I never drive. Like I just haven't bothered to make the investment yet because I don't drive anywhere other than to and from neighborhood stuff. I was traveling, as I mentioned earlier this week, I rented an EV. Oh, cool. What did you have? Well, I was traveling and it was lovely. It was wonderful. It was a Chevy Bolt. So Chevy there Bolt. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot now. Hertz is doing a ton of EV rentals. They're doing Tesla Model 3s mostly. So if you're in Denver, you're in Atlanta, a couple other cities where, yeah, it's a great way to actually try one if you haven't before. And was with Avis. And it was great. With a gas car, you have to bring back totally full. With an EV, you have to bring it back at least 70% charged, which I thought was an interesting requirement. Wow, that's interesting. There's going to be a lot of figuring that out from the rental car perspective. But the cool thing is like most hotels now, there's level two chargers in the garages of the hotels. It's like not a big thing. So interesting though. Scott, thanks for joining us on My Climate Journey. Thanks for sharing what you're building at Recurrent. And thanks for helping us all just learn more about how the used EV market is evolving. Awesome, that's super fun. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. <laughs>